welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Joe, for being a guest on my podcast. And my guest is Reverend Joe, who's the pastor at Rock Presbyterian Church in Imperial, Missouri, and also a chaplain at Mercy Hospital. And um, you were just telling me about um, that you've had other professions as a, a teacher of um, reading and poetry, a teacher of poetry, and you enjoy reading. And um, you, you were kind of saying you had a circuitous route mm-hmm. to the chaplaincy and pastoring and so forth. So um, why don't you go ahead and and pick up there and and just tell me a little bit more about how you got to the place where you are now. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I, there was one point in my teaching career when I was really unhappy in the work. I was teaching freshmen at the University of Michigan, and it was cold in the middle of winter, and I had realized that I was much more interested in my students' lives than in their grades or in the rhetoric that they were trying to accomplish as students of freshman composition. And it was was at that point um, that I realized that I needed to make a change in my life and I wasn't sure what it was. So I actually quit teaching without a job and spent about a month looking for other work and I found a job in a small company in a marketing department uh, with very few responsibilities and I spent the next kind of year and a half uh, clearing the ground waiting in silence for something else to pop up for a direction so and have you been a Christian did you grow up in Christianity and have you been a Christian pretty much your entire life then good question um So I grew up in a dual-faith household. Uh, My mom was Catholic and my dad was Presbyterian, and we went to two different churches on Sundays. Um, We went to the Catholic Church uh, to a Mass, and then we also went to an Episcopal Church. Uh, Not that it was my dad's faith tradition, but it was just the closest one to our house, the closest Protestant church to our house. So um, so yeah, I grew up as as Christian, but kind of in a, a house where faith was contested. Faith was not something that was a given, or it was a given, it wasn't a given what you would practice necessarily. So, okay, so was that just the particulars of the Christian faith, or was like the essentials of the Christian faith kind of contested um, in your household? I think the particulars, it wasn't the okay. the whole. So it was... Um, uh, decidedly Christian. It was just mm-hmm. what faith tradition, and that was the the part that was contested. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, how did you end up in um, Presbyterian? So PCUSA is the mm-hmm. church you're in. Mm-hmm. How did you end up there? Yeah. Um, I knew that the Catholic Church wasn't for me. I think. My mother pushed too hard with the Catholic Church and wanted wanted me to be a part of that church uh, and wanted everyone in our family to be a part of that church. And so I think that very pressure was um, didn't work out for the freedom that I think 
is necessary to faith. And so um, as I drifted away from the Catholic Church and ended up kind of feeling a return to, to the faith um, when I was teaching, um, I actually went to a different house of worship for about every every weekend for about a year when we were living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, at first I had settled on an Episcopalian church because that seemed like home, that seemed closest to the Catholic Church to me um, without some of the baggage. But then I, I encountered um, a preacher at a small Presbyterian church, maybe no more than 30 people that I really liked, and, and that, that ended up being my home there. And, and you know, from there I, I went into the process of becoming a minister so it was it was really about the preaching for me was there a particular time when um the faith kind of became your own so you know you you grow up with it Mm -hmm. but then um was there a particular time when you just really embraced it and became kind of a personal type of you know relationship with god and so forth Mm -hmm. oh that's a good question um hmm I think that's an ongoing process. I think it's an ongoing process where you're in tension with tradition and you're reinterpreting tradition for yourself and figuring out what it means to you and what it means in your life. If I had to pick a particular point at which the tradition came became my own, I would say, so I went to seminary at San Francisco Theological Seminary out in California. And right near the seminary, there's a, a walking, hiking, running trail. And we were reading Exodus and uh, Hebrew Bible. And there were these stories about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And every afternoon after class, I would go out for about a, like a six-mile run on this trail. And there was a point at which the trail, which it seemed very much like the place where Moses could have received the commandments, and I would pass that point. There's a vista with a, a canyon below. When I passed that point, it felt very personal and very real to me in a way that it didn't feel in the text and the way it didn't feel in the tradition. It felt not like a personal revelation, but a moment of contact. And um, so you went into seminary just early where you at that point, wanting to be a pastor, or what were you wanting to do? Why were you going into seminary then? Yeah, I don't think I really knew. I think I knew I needed something else, wanted something else. I wanted a connection with parishioners or patients as a chaplain that was about what was meaningful in their lives and what was meaningful in my own, but I didn't know what that would look like. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, um, I guess, um, why Christianity? I mean, um, what gives you um, confidence that, um, you know, that it's true, that the things that the essentials of the Christian faith are true? Is there anything in particular or... You know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good question for religion in general. Um, a similar question 
was posed to the Dalai Lama, uh, that someone came up to the Dalai Lama and they asked, you know, which religion should I be? Fully expecting that the Dalai, Dalai Lama would say, you know, you should be Buddhist. And the Dalai Lama responded, the tradition in which you grew up. And I've thought about that a lot, and that quote has returned to me a lot, and I think it has to do with the givens of your life, the tools, the metaphors that you grew up with, the things that you learned as a child or as a teenager or as a young adult. These are kind of the raw material of meaning-making in your life, the tools that you have at hand to make meaning. And so I think that's why Christianity has remained one of my meaning-making tools or my primary meaning-making tools is because simply because I grew up with it. And that's no different than if you grew up in a particular culture or if you grew up um, maybe with an atheist family or an agnostic family. Those are the meaning-making tools that you have available to you and you're comfortable with them and you know how to use them. And I think that's largely what Christianity is to me, is it's a meaning-making tool that I'm very familiar with and that makes sense to me. Right. And I can see how um, it would work out that way, you know, because that's what you have and what you grew up with. But um, I think, you know, there's also just the search for, you know, what's objectively true if things are contrasted, you know, and it, and it, it can't be both be. Um, is it like something that um, you know you wrestle with and and so forth, or is it just um, are you just can happy to be in your tradition and uh, enjoy it, and um, it's not so much um, you know the a question for you that you know that you wrestle mm-hmm. with. Oh no, no, I definitely wrestle with that. But I think, especially in my work as a chaplain, I see that belief comes out of need. Belief doesn't happen because it's what you intellectually believe to be the most true, or belief doesn't happen, well, actually as a chaplain, I'm, I should be hesitant to make uh, sweeping statements. I think belief often comes out of need, and for me, the need for a faith tradition, the need for Christianity comes out of this point at which my life, when I needed the world and my, my own life to mean something rather than not something, I needed my own existence to be meaningful rather than happenstance. Mm-hmm. And that moment, um, that, I guess, kind of that yes or no moment, is my life meaningful or is it not? That was a choice. That was a choice for me, and so that was my choice towards faith. And then a lot follows from that, maybe too much. But I think ultimately many of our belief systems are a choice about what we need the world to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've thought about you know the, the idea of, um, you know, you choose you know, something, um, ideally because you think there's reasons for believing, but there's also maybe something to be said that, um, there's a reason for believing just based on it's the best thing you know, like, um, and maybe that's, um, 
a pretty good reason. <laughs> you know, you can't. Um, but um, even though it's kind of subjective, perhaps. But um, okay. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, your faith tradition as a Presbyterian, especially PCUSA, mm-hmm. because um, so your um, church tradition and is in like a group of church traditions that's referred to as mainline sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I, in my um, circles, I hear people, uh, mainline churches referred to, but I seldom really talk with and mm-hmm. converse with someone who's a part of that tradition. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of, I want to hear from a, a mainline person. Um, I want to understand a little bit too. So is, what's, contrasted with mainline is it like mainline contrasted with evangelical or is it mainline contrasted with what um, conservative or what's uh, what is it you know oh, what gosh. are the two uh, sides there yeah I think mainline is contrasted with three dif- three different other faiths one would be Catholicism one would be the frontier churches, and one would be evangelical churches or non-denominational churches. And mainline, for me, just means that you're coming from a, a more historic tradition, probably from Europe, um, whatever baggage comes with that and whatever problems come with it. Um, yeah, so I, I see mainline as kind of a, a lineage um, that has its own advantages and its own problems. Mm-hmm. What would be the distinctives of like mainline churches? Um, I guess as compared to like I, I'm in a Southern Baptist church, mm-hmm. so as comp- compared to like a a church like mine, um, what would be? Or you know I'm familiar with PC uh, PCA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would be the distinctive? They're both Presbyterian. What, what would be the distinctive of like a, a mainline compared to? PCA, which I guess would be that be considered evangelical or more uh, mm. fundamental, or um, yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I'm not. I'm actually not sure if PCA would be considered mainline or not. I, I think it. I think it would. But I. Okay. I think I know kind of the assumptions you're talking about with mainline denominations with a more kind of liberal progressive bent to those churches. Um, I think. Part of part of what I see happening in the mainline tradition is these are resource wealthy churches, and they're churches that have the ability now to decide who they want to be in the wider public. And for good or for ill, that's what they're doing at this point. Um, and at I think there are some connections with Southern Baptists and with that kind of resource wealthy um, tradition as well. But I think mainline traditions, whatever their historical heritage, are now um, kind of making their way in, at least in the United States, according to a more contemporary progressive bent. Okay. And you're kind of referring to like, um social issues like mm-hmm. sexual ethics and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about the essentials? Um, like I've heard of and read of kind of like the, um, the liberalism of like the, 
late 1800s, early 1900s, um, that maybe, you know, I hear of coming out of Germany, influenced by Germany mm-hmm. and so forth, that, um, and higher criticism and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Is that a part of um, mainline beliefs, or do they share um, the same essentials with, like, my church as far as um, that the resurrection really happen, you know, mm-hmm. like a bodily resurrection and um, like the a, a virgin birth and of Jesus mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So is there, are they different or the same when it comes to some things like that? Yeah. I think the difference in mainline traditions is there's room to believe both. There's room to believe that this is a a metaphor for rebirth and that it's an actual bodily resurrection. So I think in many mainline traditions, there's intellectual inquiry and freedom to believe either or. And that hasn't always been the case in those traditions, but I think in their modern instances, uh, there is kind of this capaciousness for belief, um, I think, in response to a contemporary moment. Okay, so um, so it could be um, church by church, mm-hmm. individual church by individual church, or um, even in a mix in the same church mm-hmm. where you might have some um, who would hold to like Let's say, let's say the Apostles' Creed. So, an Apostles' Creed is the Virgin Birth mentioned, or am I thinking of a different creed? <laughs> I think I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, some would hold to like those ecumenical creeds, mm-hmm. and some may not. Um, but there, mm-hmm. it could be more of a mixture than, huh? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, I think a great example of it would be Nadia Bowles Weber, who's an ECLA uh, Lutheran pastor, and she said at one point about the creed that the beautiful thing about her church is that someone in the audience will believe at least one part of that creed, but probably very few people will believe the whole thing. But together, as a communal body, they will make up a group that believes each part of that creed. So I think that's indicative of what's happening in more mainline denominations, where it's a collective group that comes together that their faith may not be so comprehensive or so strong in each individual, but together as a group, they will fill in the pieces. So does your church have like, or do um, mainline churches have like a particular creed that they hold to then, mm-hmm. where it's like... Um, statement of belief so so to speak or um do they not or is it like they have a statement of beliefs but it's not required to believe it Mm. i think there are certain non-negotiables at least in pcusa okay um but we also have what's called the book of confessions and the book of confessions is a lengthy uh kind of tome of confessions that the Presbyterian Church has adopted and approved over the years. And what's really interesting about this book of confessions is that they contradict each other at different times, and they're not consistent. And in learning this book of confessions as a seminarian, you realize that these are historical and historically bound and that they're always open to renewal and reformation, which of course is a huge word for my denomination. But that 
in sorting through these confessions and figuring out what you can take from them and what made sense at the moment and what makes sense to you now. There's a kind of freedom in moving in between confessions and working with what may have been undeniably true in the 16th century, but what might feel more true now in the 21st century. So you mentioned that there there are essentials. What are those essentials? Then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's see. Well, I think those would be those would come up whenever someone like for me in my ordination there were certain things I had to assent to and then if you are becoming a member of a church there are certain things you have to assent to and so those are mostly um, related to Jesus Christ as the Son of God um, the Bible as some sort of sacred book or word um, I think there's belief in God. Um, there may be something about the resurrection, but it's the way it's worded is, I think, intentionally a little loose so that there's room for disagreement. I think with the Presbyterian Church and, and even with some frontier churches, there's room for um, individual dissent. Um, and that's kind of what has helped these churches survive over the years is that there's there's room to disagree, um, and there's not as much pressure to conform uh, as there may have been in the past. Okay. And um, and those um, leaning that way um, where there, there wasn't the requirement to conform, is that something that started like late 1800s there with like liberal movements and so forth? Mm. or? Hmm. I think at least in the Presbyterian Church, it happened in the early 20th century with biblical literalism, and there was a real split in the church, um, especially between PCA and PCUSA, and this idea that the Bible was the direct word of God versus a text that had been handed down, and that really marked the division and I think the shift that a lot of mainline traditions have taken, which is that the Bible is not uh, directly spoken by God onto the page, but rather looking at the text. It's a lot more complicated than that, and it's more about revelation or inspiration to particular figures throughout history. So I think with that initial kind of cataclysmic event, I think churches went their separate ways as far as some having more room for and freedom in individual belief and others kind of adhering to that to the Bible as a um as an inerrant text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um I think that like people in my circles, they uh they have a high view of the Bible, mm-hmm. but um they wouldn't say it's like direct as far as like dictated or something like that that would came that it came through the personalities and cultures of the authors who who mm-hmm. wrote it but um they would hold like a i think a lot of people in my circles typically hold to inerrancy but um some anyway but um mm-hmm. what about yourself um mm-hmm. like it seems to me like um the the resurrection of Jesus 
gets to like the um, the you know kind of like pretty close to the center of mm-hmm. Christianity, and um, and even um, I think like non-believing uh, theologians like Bart Ehrman and so forth would mm-hmm. uh, consider the New Testament writers as being sincere that they really mm-hmm. b- believed in. Mm-hmm. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. So, where do you stand on that as, yeah, as far as your own views? Yeah. I need that to be true. I need that to be true in my own body. So, I struggle with disability. I have a genetic disease uh, called Elder's Danlos, um, and it affects my joints. And I, I want and need bodily resurrection for myself, and that's a part of my belief system because it comes from an internal need. I think historically it could have happened or it could not have happened. I'm not totally sure, but as far as from the depths of my being and from my gut, I want it to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so anyway, I guess we can move on from that um, particular topic, but mm-hmm. it was something I really appreciate being able to ask you about, um, you know, um, just the the differences of, um, you know, these groups mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Um, so... Um, so what kind of uh, what kind of uh, disease is this that you have, or yeah. what's the symptoms and so forth? Yeah, so it's a, a genetic illness, and a, I think it was passed down to me from my mother. Um, but you have it from birth, and your joints don't quite stick together. You know, it's kind of like your body's put together with duct tape rather than you know tendons and stuff like that. So a lot of partial dislocations, um, a lot of muscle pain throughout the day because your muscles are working so hard to keep your body stable and in place. Um, You can have a lot of sensitivities to foods or to scents or to things like that. So it's, it's a pretty comprehensive disease. And part of the difficulty of it is, and and I guess part of the theology of it is what does it mean to live with a, a chronic disease? You know, we, we talk about theodicy and kind of the explanation of evil and bad things happening in terms of single events, but we rarely talk about it in the terms of chronic illness or a chronic wrongness in one's body. So I think for me that has been absolutely a part of my faith journey and a part of my attraction to chaplaincy and my attraction to the resurrection of the body, that there's this idea that a body can be made whole that's was born broken. So when I think of the resurrection, um, I kind of think of it more, the significance is more along the lines of um, vindicating Jesus mm-hmm. as um, son of God. And um, I kind of, and also vindicating our um, atonement, you know, mm-hmm. so I think of mm-hmm. Jesus's death as like an atonement, um, is that how you think of it, or do you think of it in a, 
a different way, like the significance of Jesus's crucifixion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a cipher. You know, it's a multi-dimensional event, and it means so many different things to so many different people, which is why it's had the staying power that it's had. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, it can be a metaphor. It can be kind of a metaphorical theology. For others, it can signify atonement and the wiping away of one's sins. For others, it can be especially the early gospel writers, the absolute justification of this message and this person because the Roman Empire tried to kill him and he came you know, right back. It wasn't possible. So I think that's part of the richness of the story and of the event is that it has so many different meanings to so many different people and it kind of spreads out in its significance no matter which way you look. Mm-hmm. So um, when I think of the Bible, I put a lot of significance on, um, you know, what the authors intended. Because, mm. like, if I um, take it and it's something that would never even be in the author's mind, you know, um, then I, um, I think, well, there's not real communication going on. It seems like I could take anything and maybe just any kind of writing, you know, and just make mm-hmm. something of it and think, well, that's important to me, but there seems to be a disconnect there, you know. So um, w- when it comes to, um, th- you know, what the authors were, their signif- you know, what they were trying to communicate, mm-hmm. so you, you, and that could be kind of multidimensional too, mm-hmm. um, but... Um, you said there's a lot of emphasis on just the justification of who Jesus is and his message mm-hmm. and um, the kingdom of God coming and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about yourself? What is it, the death of Jesus? What's the primary meaning for, mm. for you there? Hmm. Yeah, it really depends on the day, you know, <laughs> what I need that day, what I'm feeling that day. Um, I think mostly, I think the death of Jesus is a culmination of a life lived well. And in a bizarre way, it's a good death. I think a lot about what, what, a, death, what a good death looks like as a chaplain. And this is a good death in the sense that this is a person who was able to commit to his beliefs and commit to sharing those beliefs and was killed for it. And I, I see it as a commitment to his vision, to his, to his beliefs, to his God, to his connection with God. And it was the natural progression of what that would look like in an unjust society. Um, in what way is he the son of God? Do you do you believe or how? Yeah. Oh gosh, <laughs> that's such a loaded term in scholarship and in the Bible. Um, hmm. I th- I think those are metaphorical terms in the Bible. God is Father, uh, Son of God. I think there's such a long tradition of the Messiah supposedly being the Son of God that that was a term that made sense to the writers. I don't know what that means in a metaphysical or ultimate sense. I think it means that there's some sort of relation between Jesus and and God the Father. But I don't know I don't know what that means. I know all I know is it's 
an approximation for an ultimate reality that we probably can't see or touch or know. So then do you have a triune view of God then? I do, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think what's appealing to me about that is this relational idea. Um, the Cappadocian fathers were really into this, that God is relational, and God is relational within God's self, um, and that that is shared with us as human beings and makes us relational, makes us... Um, I guess, drawn to each other and drawn to the connections that we can form with each other and with God. And so having that as a part of God's identity makes a lot of sense to me, however much of a, you know, a mind-numbing concept it is and however little sense it makes to have a monotheistic religion with three gods. Um, the relational part still makes sense to me. So, you know, when I was... Um talking about like um what the authors intended and like that being significant what are your thoughts about that or or for you um can a, is it just as fine for a person to get a meaning out of it uh that's just for them that where there's not that direct communication because it's not what the authors were trying to say like what are your thoughts about just mm. all of that type of thing yeah hmm Well, I, I think the Holy Spirit is still active in our lives, and, and so I think the interpretation of a text is really important. And actually in the Presbyterian Church, the preaching moment in the service is equal to the gospel, or maybe not equal, but it's a, it's a gospel event. It's a moment that's given significant weight. And so I think the interpretation and the reading of a text is so important. Um, this is... In literary studies and literary criticism, uh, there's this idea that the reception of a text is, is almost as important as the writing of the text and the intention. And there are some literary scholars that say that you, you can't actually know the intention of the author, that all you have is the reception of the text and the reading of the text. And while I wouldn't go that far, I would say we can kind of pick away at what might have been the intention of the author. I do think one's encounter with a text is so important and is maybe the moment when the text comes alive. Otherwise, it's, it's just sitting there. Um, how would you uh, explain what the gospel is? Mm. Yeah. I think the primary way I think of the gospels is I think, them, think of them as counter- to a different type of letter that was being sent out at the same time in the first century. So when uh, when Caesar, when Augustus would send out a message to the different regions of his empire, he would actually start them with, this is the good news according to Augustus, this in the same word, gospel. And that's what the gospel writers are responding to. They're saying that this is not good news from the empire. Look at how we're living. We're living in poverty. We're living in a system that's unjust, full of unjust landlords, full of, you know, it's an occupied territory. People are ill. People are sick. People are possessed by demons, um, which is probably uh, 
symbolic or a marker of how unwell people are. And so the gospel is counter. The gospel, this is the good news according to someone else. This is actual good news, not good news that we're forcing down your throat or, um, or that it's in our best interest that you believe. Yes, yeah, so it is a counter message, um, and that's pretty interesting. I've heard a little bit about, you know, that about the Roman Emperor and their good news, but um, but then what's the content of the good news? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the Gospels have been described as um, a short introduction and then a passion play. So the the content is supposedly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or, you know, if you read some versions of Mark, just the death and there's no resurrection. It's just people running away from the tomb in fear, an empty tomb. Um, I think the content of the Gospels is so wide and so varied. Some people more recently like to focus on the wisdom that Jesus shared and his teachings. Other people remain focused on the death. So I think they're like the resurrection itself. It's a multi-dimensional, multi-factorial um, story that means so many different things to so many people. But I think ultimately, I think for me, if I had to pin down what the gospel message was for me, um, I think I would say that it is a story of rebirth, a story of attempting to live a good life, being punished for that, and then being born again. Um, Like I um, think of um, Paul in like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, mm-hmm. where he um, starts off saying um, something about the gospel that I proclaim to you. And then he, it's kind of like he recites a little creed there, but, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, raised the third day. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. so um, do you see that as, um, so that's like that seems to be like a little creed that probably mm-hmm. goes back like really early, mm-hmm. um, and um, I've heard it even used um, kind of for a defense of the resurrection because the message goes back so early to the mm-hmm. actual event. By um, I think his name's Mike Lacona. Are you familiar with that name? Or, uh-uh. Okay. Anyway, um, what? So what do you think of that? Is it like? Um, um just like pause of or that particular groups um that's what they got out of it or do you think that the you know the gospel message has some kind of a kind of something concrete like mm-hmm. that about uh Jesus's death and resurrection and that the death for our sins and so forth um or like you know what do you make about make of a passage of scripture like that i guess yeah yeah i would say that that's paul's core gospel that that's what the gospel is essentially to him and what he is telling his churches or churches that he's associated with is the core of the gospel 
there's a really interesting heresy, at least to me, that happened in the early church. And someone took the four Gospels and they tried to synthesize them into one Gospel. And they tried to make it very consistent and they tried to make you know, every event line up and it was considered heretical. It was thrown out. And I think there's something instructive there because these Gospels, we have different Gospels because they speak to us in different ways. So I think the Gospel is never going to be one core thing for everyone, but rather it's going to be a family of meanings, a, a connected group of meanings for people. Not that there, you can believe anything you want or that there's going to be something way out in left field that's not connected to the other kind of conglomerate of meanings, but that they, these are this is a story that means a lot to a lot of different people, and there's a connection, there's a, there's a core connection in the person of Jesus that kind of infuses these different meanings for different people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can appreciate the different gospel accounts that, um, you know, the different perspectives. And mm -hmm. like, um, are you familiar with Bible Project podcast or Bible Project on YouTube or anything? Okay. Mm -hmm. I enjoy them. And they're, this year is going to, most of it's going to be spent on um, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. But today it's just talking about... Um, the structure of Matthew and how it's so structured and like mm -hmm. the Sermon on the Mount is like the first of five discourses. And um, so the gospel writers, you know, they had their own way of, you know, of emphasis and stuff like that and telling the gospel. But and it does seem to be like a passion account. You know, that's the main mm -hmm. thing. It's the story mm -hmm. of Jesus' death and resurrection. Though, like you said in, in Mark, um, it kind of cuts off there after, yeah. you know, like, um, I forgot how, like, uh, the ladies come to the tomb and they just, they don't see him and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then John seems to be quite a bit different, like, uh, really telling the story kind of in a different way and, mm -hmm. and so forth. But, um, but yeah, I guess in my thoughts of it, though, that there's, there is some kind of a more uh, fundamental um, like content somewhat, you know, mm -hmm. death of Jesus and his resurrection. And um, he spoke, Jesus, when he mentioned about the gospel, it seemed like he was talking a lot about the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. like the gospel of the kingdom. Well, in the beginning of Mark, um, uh, you know, the uh, kingdom of God is at hand, repent, mm -hmm. believe the good news, mm -hmm. which I think the good news of the kingdom of God arriving. Mm -hmm. And but I think that to, for me, as I've thought about it, that kind of blends with Paul pretty well because it's like it's about God's rule arriving, mm -hmm. but then how are we brought into it? And I kind of, there I think of Jesus' atoning death mm -hmm. like um, as like... Um, the Lamb of God, you know, which mm -hmm. is brought up in uh, the Gospel according to John, you know, mm -hmm. and, and stuff. And but um, um, okay. Any thoughts on that? I I, I want to ask yeah. you a little bit about chaplaincy here before we we stop. Yeah. But just any thoughts about any of this type yeah. of thing? I mean that. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he often talks about it in present progressive. So when he's talking about it, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. 
mm -hmm. know, and so I think there's an idea in Christianity that the atoning death is how we're brought into the kingdom of God, but Jesus is telling us it's happening now, it's happening while I am alive and here with you. Mm -hmm. It's not happening later. It's not happening after the resurrection. It is beginning now with my teaching and with my life. And so yeah. I think that that's yet another example of how open and spacious the Gospels can be because the, the kingdom is happening from, from the beginning, from, mm -hmm. you know, from the early stages. It's not just a passion play. It's not just the death and resurrection, but the teaching is also essential. And that's a correction that later scholars or more recent scholars have begun to, to bring to interpretation of the Gospels, which is that the life of Jesus is important, not just the death. Yeah. But um, I kind of see the atonement as like uh, covering, um, like even David when he sinned mm -hmm. against Bathsheba, and like because I I think of uh, Romans chapter um, maybe it's three where um, it's to show that God is both just and the justifier because He passed over former sins. So um, so people who um, were repentant in the sense of like rather than being rebellious against God, they turned and humbled themselves to God and were like looking to Him for mercy um, and forgiveness that um, the blood of Jesus covered them. Um, and therefore, because God passed over former sins and Jesus can be merciful to prostitutes and sinners and say, come on in and receive them. And um, knowing that... Um, um, that their sin is not holding them back from a holy God. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's an important message. I mean, that, that acceptance, that, um, you know, that love, that forgiveness, I think that's especially important within Judaism and within Christianity. If you grew up in that culture and in that faith tradition, I think outside of those faith traditions, that message is not as rich and not as strong. And I think part of that is because you're presenting people with a problem that they don't actually have. They're not dealing with that guilt, that feeling that they're sinning and that they need to be forgiven. And so it's a little bit of a shell game for atheists or people outside the faith tradition. But within it, it's so rich because we are already in relationship with God and we know what the tradition says about sin. And so we need that forgiveness and we need that atoning sacrifice however you think of it, um, for our relationship with God. But um, even for those who are not in the faith tradition, and they wouldn't use terms like sin, mm -hmm. um, it seems like this um, like morally objective right and wrong mm -hmm. is like one of the most real things there is in life because everyone's trying to justify themselves. Mm -hmm. Like everyone wants to feel... Uh, be good, you know, be looked at well in the eyes of others. Mm -hmm. Like they're not content just to be, um, they, they care. They're not content just to be whatever um, because I think that there's this sense of right and wrong and they, I don't think people think of it in religious terms, but even if they don't, um, even if they're an atheist or whatever, mm -hmm. they want to feel right Um and I think that, um, I don't know, I think there's something to that um, mm -hmm. 
that we're all wanting to be justified. Um, and we fight for that and, and stuff, whether we're in the Christian tradition or not, you know? Yeah. Oh no, I think so. And I, I think I would use the word accepted more than justified. People want to be accepted and loved Mm -hmm. and that's more important than being right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Christianity offers, seems to me like it offers Mm -hmm. a lot if it hits a person, um, that they are freely forgiven and freely loved, Mm -hmm. not based on their own merits, but based on um, God who receives them through Jesus and justifies them and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if there's an original wound that Christianity responds to, it's the need to be loved and the need to be accepted. I think the idea of justification comes within the tradition and is more of a calculation that happens with our own kind of feeling of guilt and our own calculus as far as our, our faith goes. But outside of Christianity and within the larger scope of human existence and, and, and what it feels like to be human, that need to be loved is an original problem that Christianity does offer an answer to. Mm-hmm. Well, what about um, chaplain, chaplaincy, that work? Um, it, you know, was that um, something you've been interested in for a long time? Mm. You know, I, I really didn't know what chaplaincy was like or what it would involve until I did my residency and internship at, at SLU at St. Louis University Hospital. I had an idea of it, that it would involve caring for sick people, and that was probably the extent of it. But I didn't know that it would be such a rich and fulfilling experience for me until I tried it. And I think. I happened to be prepared for it because I grew up in a household with sick folks. You know, my own incipient illness. My sister was uh, bedbound from middle school through high school. My mother has the same genetic illness that I do. She was often unable to care for us and sick, and so I was a de facto caregiver for her. So in a way, I've, I've been preparing my whole life for this vocation, this career. Mm-hmm. Um, by being present with and listening to and caring for uh, people in my own circle and my own family who are sick. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty satisfying for you then being a... I've walked into um, hospital rooms where someone's near death or something and it's and there's just their loved ones sitting around and it just seemed to suck everything out of me. Um, mm-hmm. Like just, I don't know, if like the sorrow or whatever and it's it was hard to say a word, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it like for you in situations like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I want to preface my love for chaplaincy by saying that it is demanding work and that it is hard. And mm-hmm. in some ways, I don't know how long I'll be able to do it. I remember in seminary that some chaplains came to visit some of our classes, I think maybe a theology class or something like that. And... Um, Two of the chaplains lasted five years, and one lasted 10 years or something like that in the work. They just couldn't keep at it because it was so demanding. Um, But for now, I'm okay, and I I love the work. Um, 
And as far as, you know, that feeling in a room when the emotional intensity is such that it feels like something's being sucked out of you, I find those to be very sacred moments. Um, there's something happening in that room relationally between the family and the patient and you when you enter that room. You become a part of that emotional collective group, um, amoeba, amorphous thing, whatever it is that's happening in that room. And it, it feels like a privilege to me and very sacred. Um, it's not always something I do well because I think part of chaplaincy is making mistakes and learning from them. But to be involved in that and to be a part of it is is hugely rewarding. Uh, it feels like such, I don't know, such a special thing to be with people at their most vulnerable and at the extremities of life and to, and to be a witness to that and in a way that hopefully is nourishing. Mm-hmm. How do you serve them in that situation? Yeah, you know, people often ask me, you know, what do you say when someone's dying or what do you say when someone's sick? And there's no answer. There's no pat answer. There's nothing I can tell you that will prepare you for that situation other than to listen and to follow their lead. Everyone, most people approach death differently most people deal with illness differently there there are patterns and and you can um, you can probably identify or recognize a a pattern when you walk in the room or that this person may be responding in this way but you will end up in trouble and end up hurting someone if you don't follow their lead and follow their approach even if there's been a recent death When I walk in the room, I will ask, how are you feeling about this death? Rather than assuming that the person is deep in grief Hmm. or assuming that they're angry or assuming that they loved this person. Maybe they had a complicated relationship with with a person. I think the, the key thing in chaplaincy and in caring for people in the extremities of life is not to assume that you know how they feel. Yeah, that's a good question. And um, to hear what they have to say and just to hear, um, because that might be helpful for them them just to express how they Mm -hmm. feel right then. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've heard spiritual care, pastoral care described as listening someone's story into being. You know, you as a witness are listening to a story and it may not exist without that witness, or it may not exist in the same way. And as you listen to that story, it takes on meaning both for you as a listener, but more importantly for the speaker. The speaker hears their own story, and they may be constructing it in the moment for the first time. And I think that's part of the sacredness of chaplaincy, is that storytelling, which goes back to the Bible and our discussion about the Bible. You know creating and compiling this story in the moment about your relationships and what's important and what's sacred and meaningful to you. Um, Do you use um, scripture and if so, how so, like as far as like sharing or reciting scripture Mm -hmm. or anything? Mm -hmm. I, I tend to follow 
patience lead with scripture. Um, sometimes patience will kind of test you and say, you know, do you know the scripture or give me a scripture? And that's a part of gaining a patient's trust. And it's a kind of gatekeeping that happens often as a chaplain. But if a patient is familiar with scripture and that's a meaningful um, tool outlet for them, then I absolutely will make use of it. And I use, I particularly use uh, passages in scripture that give the person permission to feel how they need to feel. I don't think scripture wants to, to limit our feelings or to confine us to a particularly stoic way of being. I don't think that's what scripture is about at all. It's, it's so vast and uh, very gated in its feeling. Um, so I look for passages that say, yes, you can feel sad. Yes, you can feel angry. Yes, you can feel joyous. Um, and I look, I often look to the Psalms. The Gospel of John is great for that. Um, a lot of the Hebrew Bible is great for that. You know, just, just the wide variety of human experience that, that I can give someone permission to experience while they're already experiencing it, you know, so they don't have to say no. To what they're feeling yeah um, anything else um, so I'm kind of thinking like as a non-pastor just um, mm -hmm. wanting to um, you know be helpful or something in situations like that just besides what you've already shared anything else that would be good for uh, me or for listeners to know mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I would say know, know what you're bringing into the room. Know what assumptions you're bringing into the room, what experiences and feelings you're bringing into the room, because that will play a part in how you care for the person. So if I'm going into a room where you know, there's a son, and that's the family member, and the patient is the father, and the father has just died, I'm going to bring my own experience into that. I'm going to bring my own feelings into that. And I have to know that before I walk into the room and while I'm in the room or I could potentially do harm because I'm going to take my own story in there in a way that's clumsy or even aggressive or makes assumptions about what the other person is feeling. There's no way not to take the story in there. There's no way for me to excise my experience from my being and who I am. But if I know my story intimately and well enough that I can hold it alongside the family member's story and see where it interacts and see where I'm reacting, then I can care for them in a way that's open and spacious rather than claustrophobic. Okay. So, um, in essence, being a chaplain or being someone who's, you know, meeting with people who are in sorrow or sickness, it's... Um, you know, coming into their space, allowing them, um, you know, that openness, you know, not imposing anything on them, but allowing them to um, experience and express what's going on. But um, does it also involve giving hope and encouragement mm -hmm. or anything along those lines? Yeah. Hmm. 
different chaplains have different practices, but but mine is to never force hope, to never bring it too early to a crisis or a trauma, because if you do that, you stunt the healing process. You try and rush the healing process or bring someone to hope too early and too soon. There's um, there's a description, kind of a metaphor for what chaplaincy is like, and the metaphor is that you find someone deep in a hole, and you see them down there, and instead of yelling down there, you know, if you just had a rope or if you just use that ledge, you can get out. That would be advice. You go down and sit with them in the hole while they're there, and you wait with them. You don't say, you know, maybe we should try this or maybe we should try that. You wait with them until they find the way out of the hole themselves. And that's the only way I think that healing sticks if the person who's suffering finds the way out on their own with the accompaniment and with the confidence and with the mirror of the chaplain beside them. You can't rush it. You can't tell them how to heal themselves. They have to find it themselves. They have to find that way out um, in the company of a trusted person rather than having it be forced on them. Do they um, ask you questions, spiritual questions about, you know, whatever, you know, uh, heaven, hell, salvation, whatever, you know, depending on what they're doing? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All those questions. Um, Yeah. You know, does heaven exist? Does hell exist? Am I going to hell? Um, Does God exist? Um, Let's see. Uh, why am I suffering? Why is this happening to me? Has God abandoned me? Um, why can I no longer hear God's voice? Um, and then when um, they ask you a question like that, do you just give answer just as sincerely as you can from you know what you believe? Yeah, um, I take different approaches depending on on the patient. You know, some people, when they ask that question, it's best to reflect it back to them and give them space to answer their own question to kind of, you know, I guess a, a negative term for it would be to deflect, you know, to, to really say this is, this is your question and I will help you work through it and think through it and figure out what you believe. What I believe is not, not as important as what you believe in this moment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of the standard practice with chaplaincy and with therapy or any kind of psychoanalytic analytic approach. But in my own practice as a chaplain, I've realized that some patients want a relationship. They don't want you to deflect. They don't want you to separate yourself from them. And so they genuinely want to know what you believe and to have a dialogue. And so if I sense that that's the case, then I will actually begin to share some of my beliefs and and sort of have a back and forth and a dialogue. Um, But I'm always sharing a version of myself that will be palatable to the person and will help them in their healing, but will not unduly challenge them or derail them from their own story or their own journey. Okay. Um, 
so I'm not sure just what you meant by that last statement. Um, like how would um, someone get derailed or something by mm -hmm. um, hearing your beliefs or thoughts and, and, on the things? Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Um, hmm. Yeah, so for example, let's say a family member is, or actually let's say a patient is dying and the patient is saying, you know, will I see my family in heaven? My own belief is that is more biblical and that we don't really know what heaven looks like. We don't really know what the after, afterlife looks like. Paul talks about it as our life here is a seed and a full plant in heaven. You know, it's, it, we can't really imagine or think about it, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into that in the moment. I am going to talk about God's love or how I can't imagine an afterlife without family members who have died, because that's a true emotional experience for me. I'm not going to engage my more intellectual side or talk about biblical criticism or something like that. Or I, I'm, I'm going to meet them, you know, kind of where they're at emotionally with a belief of mine that is conducive to their healing rather than go down a rabbit hole that may or may not help them. So, right. So you're going to be sincere. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, and give them a true answer, mm -hmm. but um, you're not going to get into all the weeds and details. And but you know, you're going to give them a hopeful answer, I guess. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them an answer that's sincere and true, always sincere, always true, um, but also attuned to their needs and what they might need in the moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Um. Andy, uh, just a couple last things here before wrapping up. Any uh, personal routines um, that are meaningful to you in your life? Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. I, I am very much a creature of habit. Um, and I think part of that is needing and wanting to be prepared for the work that I do and to be ready for, for anything and everything. Um, but I also think that, that I went, when I went to seminary, there was a nun that I studied with, uh, Elizabeth Liebert, and she talked about this thing called a rule of life. And this is how you live your life, uh, in a, I guess in her terms, in a Christian way or a Catholic way. She's a Catholic nun. But I have my own rule of life and my own patterns that I think help me connect to God and help me be prepared for the vast emotional fluctuations that I witness each day. And that, um, you know, when it's not freezing cold outside, I usually go for a run in the morning. Um, and I usually meditate for uh, about 10 minutes. I used to do longer, but that's, that's really all I'm capable of. Um, so I do um, kind of, I do a daily psalm and I do a, a collect uh, in the Our Father sort of a sequence of prayers that I've selected that, that are meaningful to me. And then I meditate for 10 minutes. And the point of that meditation is not, not to experience enlightenment or anything like that or to get anywhere, but to stop thinking and to stop 
filling myself with activity and thought and to open myself up to God. So hopefully I can experience the divine or some sort of presence. And that is crucial to me for the day. If I don't do that, I can tell it. I can tell for the rest of the day that I didn't pray, that I didn't meditate. Um, and then another practice that is typical for me is that I, I, like to, I like to engage my intellectual side. So in the evening, I'll read a biblical commentary or something like that, or when I have time in between patients. So that keeps me actively engaged um, in my mind. It's kind of historical brain and literary criticism brain to kind of keep all parts of me uh, engaged throughout the day and engaged, I think, with something bigger than me, something other than me. Are, are any of the commentators you read like kind of more classic in the church history historical type of authors or are they more kind of more modern type of authors? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the church history commentators have such a wealth and so much to offer, a wealth of knowledge and so much to offer, but just for my own ease of reading, I tend to read more contemporary commentators because they, they seem to be speaking into our moment or and they, they're reading the text in a more contemporary moment. So it feels like there are fewer maybe hoops to jump through or historical details to sort out. So I, it feels more immediate to me. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, it's interesting talking with you. Like um, recently, um, I was listening to a, a podcast um, host who, um, he was uh, Anabaptist Midnight, but, um, and he, he was, you know, he's very, was very succinct and, and very detailed in his beliefs. And, um, and it, it seemed like very necessary to believe in certain ways, you know, for salvation and for, mm -hmm. and on, and that kind of, on one hand, that kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of wrote me the wrong way. I didn't ag agree with him exactly on uh, every point he made, and then mm -hmm. I didn't believe on like the, you know, I'm kind of more of an essentials type of person. Mm -hmm. And then I guess there's a spectrum. And then my talk with you, it's really on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very much. So. As far as very uh, loose and uh, personal, you know, subjective and so forth. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's just, um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. But. Yeah, I think in I think in seminary I I did have firmer beliefs. I did have more well-defined beliefs. But I think the extremities of human experience and suffering make you te test those beliefs and they really make it so that you are exposed to a, such a wide variety of the way people believe and make use of the Christian faith and I have a hard time denying other people those beliefs and the extremities of their experience there's a kind of rubber hits the road feeling to those beliefs that is hard to say no to to say you can't believe this way in this moment that is so true to you and would be to any other people this moment this experiential moment you know 
at the extremity of your life where you feel God's presence or don't feel God's presence, it's hard for me to say to that person, I think you need to look at this catechism and, and check this out. You know, this, this might be the, the essential Christian belief versus what you're feeling right now. Mm-hmm. What about your future? Just as a wrap-up question, what are... Um, what would you like the you know ne- next few years to look like, or where do you want to end up in life, or just you know what are your what are your thoughts there about your life in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I don't really think that far ahead in, in my life. I don't think farther than maybe five years ahead. I think that's as far as I can imagine, and I think that has to do with illness. That's a kind of mindset with illness. I I've, it, it's such a gift right now to be able to work as a chaplain and a pastor and I don't take it lightly and I don't take it for granted and part of that is that that I can't I can't get myself to plan farther than a few years out I know that the work I'm doing right now is meaningful and I know I want to keep doing it but I don't know what things will look like in a few years if I'll get sick or I'll get sicker I just don't know I mean I I mean, I have a 401k and stuff like that, and I, I you know, hopefully we'll retire someday, but um, I just, I have no idea. I have no idea. Where do you want to be, not so much occupationally, but just per- personally and spiritually? Mm. Oh, that's a different question. Yeah. Mm. When I first started meditation and prayer in an intentional way I felt such a deep connection with God such a profound connection with God and I've never quite gotten back to that and people say that that you can't in meditation that that often happens that you can feel God's presence in a way early on that you can't later but I would like to be able to set aside the chatter in my head and the thinking and the planning and the doing enough so that I could feel that presence again like that and and I don't know what I have to do to get there what I have to not do or if I just have to to wait and it'll happen but I think that would that would be my spiritual goal to to shut up (laughs) all right well thanks Joe I really appreciate the time with you thank Mm -hmm. you for being a guest Absolutely. Thank you.